microbes can produce tryptophan, but that tryptophan does cross the blood-brain barrier and, as I say, act, acts as a building block for serotonin, which of course is such an important role to play in relation to regulating mood and diet and, and, and sleep patterns. So in 2017, I was lucky enough to be able to take a few months off work and travel around South America. And I found myself at one point on a four-day tour around the Ecuadorian Amazon rainforest. And on one of the days when we were trekking through the humid, dense jungle, our guide stopped us and pointed down to the dark soil beneath our feet and pointed to a small red fungus protruding out from the soil and said, I bet you connected to that fungus is an ant. Sure enough, he dug it out, and out of this brain of the ant grew a red fungus, which had the very simple name Ophiocordyceps unilateralis. We were told that a few days previously, this pathogenic fungus would have infected the ant and completely changed the ant's behaviour, turning it into a zombie ant, essentially. See, this parasitic fungus requires the dark, damp, nutrient-rich soil in order for it to replicate inside its host, the ant. So it controls the mind of the ant, forcing it out of the safety of the forest canopies, down onto the forest floor, and replicates inside of its brain until the ant eventually dies. This is just one of many examples of how tiny microscopic organisms can change the brain and the behaviour of larger multicellular organisms from insects right up to mammals. So what do we know about the role of bacteria, fungi and viruses in human brain and behaviour? Can microorganisms affect our stress levels? Do our stress levels make us more prone to infection? Do the microbes that live in our bodies lead to certain brain conditions in early life or later life? And how can we change the microbes inside of us to benefit our brains? Hello and welcome to the Biomes podcast. My name is Dr. Rory Robertson. And if you've listened to my introductory episode, you'll know what this podcast series is all about. So if you didn't, uh, maybe go listen to it. But this is a a series that aims to give listeners uh, an insight into the latest scientific developments in one of the hottest fields in science these days, and that is the human microbiome. Not just the gut microbiome, which seems to grab all the attention, but all microbiomes which are living on and and amongst uh, the human body, from gut to lung and every nook and cranny in between, because we are essentially walking ecosystems that are home to these trillions of microorganisms from bacteria to viruses, fungi, and and everything else in between. And we've learned so much over the last few years about how important these are for our health, yet sometimes we don't know what exactly is happening right now and what the next developments are in the lab. So that's what this podcast series is about, to try and interview scientists and find out what their thoughts are about the future of the human microbiome and what exactly is going on in their laboratories right now uh, so that we can know what to expect 
uh, for the, the future of the gut microbiome. So I'd ask you, uh, please, if you're listening to this and you enjoy it, uh, please rate the podcast uh, on iTunes or follow and like and Spotify and, and share with anyone you think that might be interested. This, I think, will appeal to anyone who's in the field of the microbiome or any other field of biology, really, uh, but also to anyone who just has an interest in science and who might already know what the microbiome is but wants to learn a little bit more about what is the future and, and what will the future hold in terms of treatments targeting our microbiomes or using our microbiomes to predict whether we'll get a certain disease, for example, and various other aspects of this fascinating field. So I have a fascinating interview to kick off this series that delves deep into one of the hottest areas of science right now, how microbes, particularly microbes in our gut, affect our brain, from brain disease to simply how we feel, how we think, and how we behave. My guest is Professor Ted Dynan, who is a recently retired a professor of psychiatry in University College Cork in Ireland, and he did most of his work within the APC Microbiome Ireland, uh, which is where I did my PhD, actually, and I, I spent about a year of my PhD working in Ted's lab, uh, conducting some of this research, investigating how our diets influence our gut microbes and how this might affect how our brain develops in early life. Now, Ted has had a fantastic career. He's originally a psychiatrist uh, by training, but he's conducted research uh, throughout his career as well, investigating uh, the pathology of, of brain diseases and how our brains can change and behave uh, at various stages of life and under different disease states. And in the kind of later part of his career, uh, he started looking at how our gut, particularly our gut microbiomes, uh, interact with the central nervous system and how that may affect both our brain development, but also how we just think and behave on a, on a daily basis and whether our gut microbes can influence things like mood or even serious disorders like clinical depression. And some of Ted's work, which we'll talk about, has even led to the discovery of specific species of bacteria, which may even reduce things like stress in humans. So as we're living in a viral pandemic at the moment throughout the world, I've begun by discussing with Ted the link between stress and infection. And that's because there is a stress hormone known as cortisol, which is a type of corticosteroid. And that is produced when we are stressed. And it's a central part of what is known as the hypothalamic pituitary adrenal axis or HPA axis. But it also plays a really interesting role in our immune systems and how we might respond to infection. So I wanted to ask Ted what this link was between stress and infection and how that also corresponds to the larger ecosystem of microbes in our body and how if humans are stressed, if that could interact with our gut microbiome or the other way around, if our gut microbiomes could influence our susceptibility to becoming stressed. So what I kind of like to start off with is we're kind of in this weird time of COVID-19 and a massive pandemic. Uh, and that's, you know, an infection, it's a, it's a pathogen, but it also brings a lot of stress as well. So there's really interesting research, which I know you know about, 
uh, to do with stress and infection and how chronic stress can uh, make us more susceptible to, to infections. But there's kind of paradoxes in that way that uh, chronic stress can uh, lead to inflammation, can kind of enhance our, our, our immune system in some way. Uh, but at the same time, we can become uh, more susceptible to viral infections. So maybe we can talk a little bit about that. Um, there's the, kind of some of the work from Janice Kiefel Glazer and Ronald Glazer, and they'd shown back years ago now that during a three-day exam period, students had um, kind of suppressed immune systems. They'd lower NKT cells, lower gamma interferon, and, and lower kind of T cell subsets. Um, but at the same time, we know that cortisol can kind of increase uh, inflammation in the same way. So how does that work in terms of, you know, viral or bacterial infections and chronic or acute stress? Right. Well, I think that, you know, if you go back to one of the kind of fundamental laws in psychology, which is the Erkes-Dodson law, where they look at the capacity to learn and stress response, and clearly stress up to a certain pivot point actually is good for us. I mean, we all need stress in our lives. And I think our immune system, likewise, can be positively benefited from stress. Um, but above a certain pivot point, the impact of stress becomes very negative. As Yerkes Dodson said in their law, you know, you learn less if you're overly stressed. And it's quite the same, I think, with the immune system. I mean, if you look at cortisol, cortisol clearly has a very important role to play in, in regulating metabolism, not just in the periphery, but, but centrally in the brain as well. When cortisol levels reach a certain pivot point, they can actually suppress immune responses and make one more vulnerable to infection. So whilst cortisol can be beneficial in fighting infection up to a certain point. And in fact, you know, what, what I've always found intriguing biologically is the fact that with evolution, one might have thought that given the fact that humans are so dependent upon cognitive or psychological functioning, one might have thought that one would have a different response in terms of the hypothalamic pituitary adrenal axis, that our, our a psychological stress would have a different act, activation of the HPA than a biological stress, such as influenza. Yeah. And the answer is, and, and it doesn't. I mean, we've actually clearly in, in in at an earlier stage in evolution, clearly biological threats were more important than psychological threats. And one might have thought that as psychological factors became more important, that we might develop a different biological way of dealing with those psychological threats. But in fact, we don't. I mean, if one is psychologically stressed because of an exam, the HPA response, the hypothalamic pituitary adrenal axis response, is, is identical to the response you have when you when you have an infection such as influenza or COVID or, 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 or whatever. Um, uh, you know, we, we, we don't seem to kind of differentiate between the two. So some of the work that, you know, I did in your lab and, and a lot of people you have done in your lab over the last few years is how stress might alter the gut microbiome. And I suppose, um, or, or possibly microbiomes all over the body, not just in the gut. 
Uh, and our microbiome is so important for that colonization resistance against pathogens. Um, you know, taking up that physical space, communicating with you know, the immune cells and the lamina propria and, and in so many other ways. So could stress, you know, I know you've shown in animal models, could it alter the microbiome? And is that a, p- a potential pathway that leads to infection susceptibility? I mean, one of the first papers to look at the impact of early life stress on the gut microbiota was a paper where we were looking at an early life stress model in rodents. It was the maternal separation model where the animals were separated from their mums for three hours a day between postnatal day two and 12 or whatever. And we looked at them when they were mature and we showed that they had um, abnormal stress responses in the sense of abnormal hypothalamic pituitary adrenal axis responses. Um, But we looked in a rather crude way um, at the time, um, uh, you know, capacity to look at the gut microbiota was was very limited compared to what it is today. Um, but we, we showed that the gut microbiota in those animals, when they grew to maturity, was much narrower in diversity. So the early life stress produced an alteration in the hypothalamic pituitary adrenal axis, also altered the immune system insofar as there was a far greater propensity to have pro-inflammatory cytokines in these animals, you know, if one stimulated their whole blood or or, uh, PBMCs. Um, And at the same time, they did have a restricted diversity in the gut microbiota. Mm. I do think there is certainly that window early on in life, very early on, is one that is capable of altering the gut microbiota and altering subsequent immune responses. Since it became apparent that your gut and its microbes interact with the brain, scientists have been trying to uncover the routes through which this communication between gut and brain occur. And this happens through a number of biochemical and physical connections. And one of these critical physical connections is the vagus nerve, a nerve that connects the brain with the intestines and other parts of the body. Now, there's been some fascinating studies that I talked to Ted about, which show that people who have a vagotomy, that is a surgery to sever their vagus nerve for various different disease states, may have altered susceptibility to certain brain disorders, one being Parkinson's disease. Now, some fascinating research has recently shown that alpha-synuclein, which is this protein that builds up in the brain during Parkinson's disease, that may actually originate in the gut, and it may signal and travel through the vagus nerve and lead to Parkinson's disease in the brain. We also talked briefly about vagal stimulation, which is a fascinating new therapy that has been trialed in certain patients with certain brain disorders where the vagus nerve is stimulated electrically. And we also finally talk about some of the hormones which can be produced in the gut and which may interact with the brain. So I'd like to talk a little bit about vagus nerve signaling. You and John published kind of one of the seminal papers in the field of how the, the vagus nerve uh, is central to that communication between the gut microbiome and, uh, and the brain um, by performing vagotomies in mice and, and showing that a certain lactobacillus probiotic wasn't 
uh, effective anymore at reducing that stress response when uh, in these in these bigotomized mice. Since then, there's been kind of huge developments in the field of looking at how this the vagus nerve is central to this uh, interaction and this signaling. Uh, and one of those is um, this kind of discovery of what are known as neuropods, where these enteroendocrine cells, which are quite rare in, in the gut, were thought previously just to produce kind of slow-acting peptide hormones, and that was kind of their method of signaling to the brain. But actually, it turns out they kind of are involved in um, locally exciting sensory nerves, and they're really involved in this kind of electrical stimulation uh, as well. So could you kind of talk about that, if you know about it in relation to the gut and the microbiome and how, how that's relevant to, to what's known about the gut-brain axis already? There are certain bacteria that seem only capable of communicating with the brain when the vagus nerve is intact. Now, this is not true of all bacteria because there are some bacteria that do seem capable of communicating with the brain even in the presence of a full vagotomy. Um, so, you know, there are clearly parallel routes of communication and the vagus nerve is just one of them. Um, and my own involvement in this area came about because of my interest in major depression, really. And I was involved in a study where there were vagal nerve stimulators implanted in the vagus nerve for treating patients with very severe forms of intractable depression. And it's now recognized that that is one way of kind of effectively treating depressive illness. It's not used too often, but it does seem to work for, for, for certain patients. Um, the, the the other kind of clinical area, I suppose, where the vagus nerve has, has achieved a certain predominance or, or importance in recent times is the whole area of Parkinson's disease. Yeah. Now, you know, we've known for quite a long period of time that the zona compacta neurons in the substantia nigra degenerate in Parkinson's disease. Those neurons are... are, are dominant dopamine neurons. So they're, they're very selective. In many ways, it's the most selective of all neurological disorders because it's just the dopamine neurons that are degenerating in the condition. But there is, I suppose, an, an increasing view that this disorder may actually begin in the gut and that the vagus nerve may be an important track for tracking alpha-synuclein in yeah. the brain, which may actually be involved in, in, in killing these actual dopamine neurons. And it's surprising in many ways that whilst, you know, the pathway of the, the vagus nerve from the gut to the brain is very well delineated, we still don't have an absolutely clear view of the actual dopamine or, or the, the, the vagal pathways with, within the brain from the nucleus tractus solitarius and, 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 and onwards. Um, but um, certainly if, if one takes Parkinson's disease, there has been no advance in treatment over the last 30 years, really. I mean, you know, we've been still trying to manipulate dopamine. So I, I, I think what the vagus nerve and the gut approach does is provide an entirely new paradigm in relation to the management of Parkinson's disease. And who knows, maybe it'll be more fruitful than... Than, than what has been heretofore. Yeah, that was actually going to be my my follow-on questions was talking about Parkinson's and all that interesting yeah. evidence that 
maybe the alpha synuclein originates. One big study was showing in the uh, in the appendix, uh, or there's definitely more of this alpha synuclein uh, in the kind of peripheral nervous system, you know, prior to Parkinson's onset. Uh, and I know it was wasn't it Sarcosmasmanian's group who'd shown that in some of their kind of Parkinson's animal models that. Uh, it, it, the kind of pathology of Parkinson's was dependent on the microbiome where you wouldn't get the same motor deficits in the germ-free animals um, as you would in, in the, the ones with a normal microbiome, or they then transplanted from Parkinson's patients uh, into the animals. And that showed the, I suppose, maybe the causal role of the microbiome in that, um, in that pathology. So you were saying those, I mean, vagotomies used to be more common and there's big kind of observational studies that people who had appendectomies or vagotomies seem to be at a, a lower risk of, of Parkinson's. I think one was a study of 1.6 million patients, you know, all over the world who had appendectomies. And I can't remember what the, the risk was at the end, but they had a hugely uh, reduced risk of, of developing Parkinson's. So do you think that is the kind of the next step in kind of Parkinson's treatments is, is targeting uh, this kind of gut-derived alpha-synuclein? Well, you know what I would like to see at this particular point in time before it's too late, and it's something I've been suggesting for a long while, but haven't personally got around to doing this, and nobody else has, in my, to my knowledge, either. And that is, there are an enormous number of patients going around, still alive in their 70s and 80s, and prob probably in their 90s, who had vagotomies back in the 50s, 60s, and 70s. And there has been no... In proper investigation of mental functioning or genital brain functioning in at an individual level. Because what we've got, as you've rightly pointed out, are epidemiological studies in Scandinavia on people who've had vagotomies, either full truncal vagotomies or partial vagotomies, or we've got the epidemiological data in relation to appendicectomies. But in fact, no one has, has explored individuals. We, you know, one would imagine that, you know, somebody would have looked at a cohort of people who've had an appendicectomy or sorry, a vagotomy and looked at their mental health since then. And there's no proper study in the literature at all. Right. And of course, the reality is such people are, are obviously very elderly at this stage and they'll all be dead in 10 years time or 15 <laughs> years. <laughs> Got to get them soon. Yeah, um, definitely. You mentioned the vagus nerve, uh, vagus nerve stimulation, uh, yeah. which seems kind of quite a hot hot topic as well these days. Yeah. So how, how does that work? Is that do you reckon that is kind of mimicking what uh, certain microbes could be doing? You know, that there's clearly that kind of um, signaling from the gut microbiome to the brain through the vagus nerve, and obviously it's more complex than that to certain regions yeah. of the brain. But is that what what this vagus nerve stimulation could be mimicking? I, I think that's a reasonable hypothesis that what you're doing is you're stimulating and you're stimulating up to the nucleus tractor solitarius and into limbic structures in the brain. And that, you know, under normal physiological circumstances that microbes in the gut producing whatever chemicals they may be producing, because obviously they can produce most brain neurotransmitters are stimulating the vagus nerve and um, doing essentially what can be done electrically with a, with a vagal nerve stimulator. Um, you know, clearly it would be much better for patients if we could find 
precise bacteria that could mimic that and that could have a genuine antidepressant action and yeah. no one has come up with that yet i mean although i think there are moves in that direction but it, it certainly hasn't happened as of yet yeah, it'd be a little less invasive to take a probiotic than a full vagal stimulation and so that's why I, I kind of want to move on to next you mentioned bacteria being able to produce you know some of these neurotransmitters and you know the big kind of revelation is that the kind of quote thrown around is that 90% of serotonin is, is produced in the gut. But, you know, we know that that serotonin probably doesn't cross the, the blood-brain barrier. Is that correct? You know, a huge proportion of serotonin is, is, is produced in the gut, but it doesn't actually have kind of neurological functions. You know, less than 1% of all the serotonin in the body is in the brain. I mean, that's the reality. But what the microbes are capable of doing, certainly what bifidobacteria, what many bifidobacteria are capable of doing is producing tryptophan. Now, we used to think, you know, if you look back a decade ago, or in fact, if you look at your standard textbook of psychiatry or nutrition, it will state that the main source of, of tryptophan, which is the building block of serotonin, is from the diet. And obviously, people mention things like turkey and bananas and a whole raft of you know dietary sources of tryptophan but in fact bifidobacteria are capable of synthesizing tryptophan de novo and the human brain has very limited storage capacity for tryptophan so we do really need a constant supply of tryptophan crossing the blood-brain barrier which of course it does and that's assuming that there's enough of it in the bloodstream and but you're right. I mean, serotonin itself cannot cross the blood-brain barrier, uh, but tryptophan does. So microbes can produce tryptophan. I'm not saying there isn't a dietary source of tryptophan as well. Almost certainly there is. Um, but that tryptophan does cross the blood-brain barrier and, as I say, act, acts as a building block for serotonin, which, of course, is such a important role to play in relation to regulating mood and diet and, and and sleep patterns so it is yeah kind of can transport that precursor but doesn't quite transport serotonin itself and the serotonin that is produced in the gut you know the that other 90 99 yeah. is kind of more to do with motility and and gi function than the serotonin has I, these other roles other than antidepressant roles absolutely i mean i think you know the major source is obviously in the gut the second major source is in platelets. I mean, platelets have a high serotonin content as well. And then the third area in the body is clearly the brain. But actually, although it plays such a vital role in the brain, in, in overall global terms, the quantity of serotonin in the brain is actually relatively small. Although the field of the gut-brain axis generates much hype about its potential as a new frontier in tackling brain disorders, this hype tends to outpace the scientific reality. A vast majority of studies in this field have been conducted in laboratory mice and haven't yet been translated into humans. A fascinating study published this year demonstrated how difficult it is to translate laboratory mice microbiomes to human microbiomes, where the authors showed that if they transplanted embryos from laboratory mice into wild mice with their natural microbiome, 
Drugs that had previously been shown to be successful in mice and failed in humans then also failed in mice, which in the future could save billions in pharmaceutical trials of drugs which we know actually don't work because they've only been done in mice. I asked Ted about this limitation in the gut-brain field at the moment. What more can be done in this scientific field to translate some of these exciting findings into humans? And also how we can account for the fact that there is a personalised or responder profile where some people may respond to a certain treatment differently to others based on their own personal microbiome or even their own genetics or own psychological profile. So I want to kind of change tack just a little bit um, and maybe talk a little bit about kind of the models that, that we use to, to investigate some of these. And in this field, it's predominantly animals at the moment. You know, all of this research is, is has been done in animals. And I suppose you could argue that the, the research that's done in humans so far has been um, not as exciting as, as you might hope for or expect. And that's still... Uh, we're still waiting for that big breakthrough in the kind of the human studies of the, of the gut-brain axis. And you uh, have found that in, in your lab. Uh, I know there was a quite promising probiotic, which you showed, I think it was John Kelly did the work of showing in animals that it was great and it had all these, I think, stress-reducing uh, actions, but didn't seem to work in, in humans. Maybe you could talk about that, about translating from animals to yeah. humans. It's a big challenge, really. As you rightly point out, I mean, the literature is full of preclinical data. There's lots of preclinical data, which has accumulated over the last 15 years. The number of human intervention studies is actually very limited. And not only is it limited in terms of quantity, but the quality of the studies isn't great either. Um, a lot of these studies either use poor design, and that poor design certainly includes inadequate um, numbers of subjects. You know, when you look at the failure to translate our, our, our study with that uh, lactobacillus rhamnosus, the JB1 strain, was entirely negative, no matter what way you looked at it. I mean, we looked at endocrine parameters, we looked at immune parameters, we looked at psychological parameters, and whilst it looked magical in mice, and it does seem magical in rats as well. It seems, in our hands at least, it does nothing in humans. Um, and of course, maybe that's not too surprising. The pharmaceutical industry have been using rodent models for decades. And of course, there's been a very definite failure to develop new antidepressants. And some things work wonderfully well in rodents and just just don't translate. So I think it's the, re the really big challenge is to have, you know, proper translational studies. How much is that lack of response maybe down to a kind of a responder profile whereby some people might respond to a, to a certain microbiome therapy versus someone else due to their underlying microbiome profile, due to genetics, due to something else? I think that's a very valid observation. Uh, you know, most of the studies that are done with live biotherapeutics do not take the initial microbiota into consideration when the initiation of, uh, with treatment takes place. Um, of course, there's also the problem that there are virtually no dose-response studies with live biotherapeutics. Mm. You know, nobody would try to develop an antidepressant or an anxiolytic agent without first doing dose-response studies. Yet, we treat rats and mice with maybe 
10 to the 9 CFU. And we then think the thing is wonderful in rats and in mice. And we go off and give the same dose to humans and expect that it's going to do the same thing in humans, having used the same dose and having done no dose response study. <laughs> um, and, uh, you know, you know, so I, there, there really is a, a, most of the translational studies can be criticised on some level or other because they're far from flawless, that's for sure. So it's clear that current science doesn't support a magical treatment for a faulty gut-brain axis yet. But there are many trials currently underway which are examining probiotics or live biotherapeutics, as they're now known in the context of clinical diseases, or even faecal microbiome transplants, or FMT, which involves taking a healthy person's microbiome in the form of their stool and transplanting it into a sick person, and using these gut microbiome-targeted therapies to try and reduce the burden of brain disorders. And some of these treatments are already available on the market or in private clinical practice without rigorous scientific backing to support them. I discussed some of these with Ted, including a live biotherapeutic that he has been involved with, which has been shown to reduce stress in a small number of humans, and also the controversy of faecal microbiome transplants in autistic children. This has been quite a controversial topic all around the world, and one that has actually led some private clinicians in North America to conduct FMT in children with autism without really good scientific evidence behind it. And finally, Ted tells us what he thinks the future holds for gut-brain access research and why diet may be the elephant in the room in terms of being the varying factor which hasn't yet been accounted for when examining how our guts affect our brains. Moving on to the applicability to humans, translating this into kind of future treatments. We talk about probiotics and then there's, of course, FMT is... is really uh, interesting topic at the moment. Uh, yeah. There was kind of a couple of studies on FMT and, and autism, which, you know, the in fairness to the authors themselves have been, um, they've been quite careful about it and said, look, this is only preliminary evidence. And they've, they've done a pilot study, which seemed to show some beneficial effects in, uh, in autistic children. Um, and now they're kind of moving on to a larger trial. What are your, are your thoughts on that and the kind of FMT autism controversy? I'm a bit sceptical, to say the least. Um, I do not personally believe that autism is a single entity. I mean, you know, you look at the American epidemiological data, they're saying that one in 58 children born in the U.S. are suffering from some form on the autism spectrum disorder. I Personally, I think that that is a crazy statistic. I don't believe it. I think that, you know, an enormous number of of, of individuals who have intellectual deficits and, and other problems with social functioning are being put into the spectrum. I think that what, what is now, or what is in the DSM-5 as a, as a definition of autism uh, is, is, from a biological perspective, I believe to be a very heterogeneous mishmash. It is not a single entity at all. And unfortunately, in a lot of countries, gaining access to interventions for parents 
is easier to acquire if the if the child has a diagnosis of autism or autism spectrum disorder. Yeah. Um, but do, do I believe that that the gut microbiota in in, in autism? in patients who have autism has changed. It probably is. I mean, there are two or three studies in the literature. But on the other hand, I mean, you know, I'm not, I don't profess to be an expert on autism. I've obviously seen patients with autism in my clinical practice, but I, I'm no expert on the subject. But a lot of them are very abnormal eating patterns, yeah. you know, and, you know, the question then becomes, is, is an abnormal diet or a very obsessionally oriented diet towards certain food nutrients, is that producing an altered microbiota? Maybe it is. And, and, and in which case, the microbiota alteration has nothing to do with the pathophysiology of autism. That's what I was so, going to say. I mean, a lot of these cross-sectional kind of gut-brain studies are... You know, all of the evidence so far is look at the microbiome is different in this brain disorder versus these healthy people. Whereas, and a lot of that autism work is kind of grounded on the fact that, oh, um, patients showing autistic symptoms uh, have a kind of gastrointestinal symptoms as well. Well, yeah, they probably do because they have a completely different diet and lifestyle. And there's so many different kind of environmental factors that can contribute to that. So um, I think that's kind of important in the Although, although we're we're kind of pushing for the translation of these animal studies into humans, you know, there's still we still have to be skeptical in that as well um, when we're looking at that. So one of the kind of treatments now that's on the market is this uh, one that was kind of developed out of work in the APC, uh, and I think it's called Serenitas on the market, and that did show in humans that there was a reduction in cortisol in a kind of acute res uh, stress response. So that did have animal evidence and it did have human evidence. I think there was some MRI study with it as well. Is that right? There was, yeah. No, our, our study here in Cork was a, a preliminary study in humans. It was placebo controlled, but it was a preliminary study, um, which did suggest that the um that this particular biflongum had the capacity to reduce morning cortisol levels we were measuring the morning cortisol levels in saliva and uh, that is probably if you're looking at stress is probably the best time of day to look at cortisol levels and cortisol and saliva parallels that in the blood and we found that these salivary cortisol levels were reduced we also intriguingly, and I think it's probably the first time it's been done with a live biotherapeutic, found EEG changes in the subjects when they were on the um, live biotherapeutic. And the reduction in cortisol levels was actually correlated or correlated quite highly with the observation of the subjects themselves that they felt subjectively less stressed. So there was a, a, a subjective feeling of being less stressed, which correlated with the reduction in morning cortisol levels. So, yeah, it, so that preliminary study certainly, you know, lends credence to the view that this particular live biotherapeutic may have anxiolytic activity. Yeah, and even then, you know, a lot of the work has shown kind of in other treatments of the microbiome or, or therapies targeting the microbiome is there there is as we talked about this kind of responder effect and, and some people seem to respond and some people don't based on the, the the underlying gut microbiome or in this case maybe underlying kind of psychological symptoms as well um so how about we finish up and just maybe talk about your top three or one or two things that i think are are coming next in the field what is what would you like to see and and what 
do you expect to see, I suppose, over the next, let's say, five years in the kind of gut microbiome from a kind of mechanistic understanding? What do we need to see onto maybe a translation in, into humans? Right. Well, there are a number of things I'd like to see. I mean, you mentioned at the beginning that, you know, you, you, you started off in nutrition yourself and, you know, kind of moved into this, this area. And I do think that, you know, nutrition as a discipline has an enormous amount to offer in this field because clearly, you know, what microbes, microbes we have in our gut is largely dependent upon our nutrition. And, you know, there is a burgeoning and ever-expanding literature showing that a Mediterranean-type diet has a very positive mental health benefit. I mean, there's no question or doubt in my mind that people who are on a Mediterranean diet have less depressive episodes over a five or 10 year period than people who are not on a Mediterranean diet. And I believe that if one is on a Mediterranean diet and depressed, that one responds to therapies, be it cognitive behavior therapy or antidepressants, in a, in a more effective way. And yet the pharmaceutical industry never, never control for nutrition when they're nice. doing clinical trials. But what I would like to see, and this hasn't been done, I would like to see a proper evaluation of what the Mediterranean diet does to the gut microbiota. Mm -hmm. And really, you know, what are the fundamental components of the gut microbiota for good mental health? Mm. Is it polyunsaturated fatty acids? Is it polyphenols? Is it, is it prebiotics? I mean, what are the fundamental components of a Mediterranean diet that we know have such a fundamentally positive benefit on mental health? So that's certainly, you know, I, I, I think, you know, there, there are important studies to be done there and they haven't been done to date, that's for sure. So thanks very much for listening. Uh, this was my first podcast. So if you enjoyed it, please uh, rate it if you're listening on iTunes, preferably five stars, or share and like on any other platform. And over the next few weeks, I'll be chatting to some of the best scientists in the world who are researching human microbiomes. So if you enjoyed this episode, then please uh, listen in again, and I'll see you next time.